it's Laura with a quick intro for the short game classic episode on Crypt of the Necrodancer. So we recorded this back when the game was in early access, and since then it's officially released in April 2015, and you basically can get it on any platform, Switch, Steam, PS4, Xbox One, Vita, iPhone, iPad, and it was awesome then, it's still awesome now. Next week we're going to cover Cadence of Hyrule, which is a sequel to this one with a twist. So Cadence of Hyrule blends Crypt of the Necro Dancer with Zelda. So if you're new to the whole concept of a rhythm roguelike, start off with this episode and learn what Necro Dancer is all about. One thing, uh, the episode starts off with a version of what's been making us happy this week, which is a little dated. We talk about the fifth edition coming out of Dungeons and Dragons, but we think it's still really fun. If you want to jump straight to the game review though, just go to the second chapter. And because the soundtrack to this game rules, we made you a playlist of our favorite tracks. It's linked in the show notes. Now let's go back in time to 2014. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about fitting games into your life. We talk mostly about short games, the kind of games that you can play in uh, an evening or a weekend, and uh, hopefully play along with us so that you can play about a game a week. It's kind of a thing we're doing. Uh, hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> I, I hate intros. I'll probably re-record that later. I am joined this week by uh, my bro host and uh, frequent podcast person, Shane Kelly. How are you doing, Shane? Yeah, I'm doing great. Life is beautiful. It is indeed. And um, this week, we have a returning guest co-host, uh, Laura Nash. How are you doing, Laura? Great. Short and to the point. For those of you who may not uh, remember, who may not have caught our iOS games episode, um, Laura is a longtime friend of the show and a uh, friend from small times, and she has more experience with games than either of us put together as someone who has... Uh, developed games and uh, longtime gamer on iOS and other platforms and expert on gaming and on Dora the Explorer. Yes, a little bit too much on Dora, but uh, not so much Dora anymore, thank goodness. <laughs> anymore. No more Dora. <laughs> okay, <laughs> please cut that. But we are, we are together to doc- talking today about a game that I'm really excited about, and that's Crypt of the Necrodancer. This is a game that kind of came out of nowhere for me. Uh, it's a Steam early access game, and we'll talk a little bit about our impressions of it. Uh, I don't play a lot of early access games, but this game really jumped out at me. Uh, before we really dive in, though, um, what's everybody been up to this week? Shane? Well, uh, my gaming has been of the pen and paper variety. I am, uh, for the first time, I've been very eagerly awaiting the release of 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, as you might have known. I, I think we've talked a little bit about it on the show. And I've finally got in my hands the Player's Guide. Uh, it's now released. We're still waiting on kind of to complete the library, the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. But uh, <laughs> Double thumbs up. The, uh, the Player's Guide... I've got to say, I'm ready to now give, after having really uh, dug through it, I'm ready to give my kind of basic review of of it. And it's it's absolutely fabulous. Uh, They are doing an amazing job with 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. I was not a fan of 4th edition 
fifth edition undoes all of the kind of misbegotten attempts at uh, kind of over gamifying, if, if I can say that about a game, the game. Can you give you an example? Sure. Uh, well, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, uh, they had this sort of grand plan where they were going to create a version of Dungeons and Dragons that uh, brought in people from all over and enabled them to kind of create a single system that worked well as a video game and as a tabletop game. So uh, it took what has always been a game about storytelling and uh, about infinite choice and uh, reduced a lot of it to a, a set list of moves that you can do. And uh, that's out the window now. Uh, that. I think was a, was a big thing that drove people away from Dungeons and Dragons during the fourth edition and into the arms of uh, Paizo and their um, Pathfinder role-playing game, which is was based on third edition Dungeons and Dragons. Anyhow, the, fourth ed- the fifth edition now uh, is not only kind of a return, it's to Dungeons and Dragons third edition, it's even more so a kind of a greatest hits it brings all the best things that I've loved about all the previous editions together. I was digging back through old editions of Dungeons & Dragons. You remember I was a big fan of uh, kind of uh, OD&D or original D&D uh, offshoots. There's, there's one that I still love called Adventurer, Conqueror, King that was an offshoot of original D&D. Uh, but it is, in a way, a back-to-the-roots approach uh, and for the for the listeners out there, the biggest thing that I love about I'm loving about it is that you can dive into this absolutely for free. Go to the Dungeons and Dragons site. There's a version of the player's guide that's available right now for free as a PDF that includes uh, all the essential classes and races. You can build your character, you can uh, learn the rules, and you can find a game. They've really devoted themselves to creating a game that is accessible. And Dungeons and Dragons has not always been very accessible. <laughs> Perhaps for its entire history. Yeah, that's fantastic. I came, um, I started playing fourth edition when I was uh, really training as a level designer. So I was, my head during the day was in mechanics, and then I went at night and tried to play a bard, which I shouldn't have played for my first character in fourth edition because everything was, you know, area spells that affected different people in different ways, and it was completely mechanics based. Had I not been spending the entire day um, working on balancing games, I don't think I would have stuck with it. And eventually I turned to a monk because it was much easier just to kick people in the face. Hmm. Um, now that I've moved to Chicago, I have a DM who's much more of a storyteller than the Max Men fellow I play with in Seattle. And we've been talking about swapping when we get to a major milestone. Like, maybe there'll be a giant earthquake and everyone will fall into the 5th edition. We'll see what happens. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you currently playing 4th edition? We are currently playing 4th edition. Um, All right. And, we, you know, again, we're playing where, you know, we're maybe doing an encounter per session because it's so storytelling-based. Um one of the biggest things that for me is different is that I have never really, really loved loved games that require a battle mat where you are placing little figurines to mark off the location. 
Fourth edition was the first and now only version of Dungeons and Dragons that absolutely required miniatures and markers on a mat to to lay out the battles. Fifth edition is pulls way back from that. And for storytelling, I find that to be a big change. And battles, I think, will go a lot quicker. I have a game coming up I'm going to be running. I'll let you know how it goes. And uh, hopefully, uh, Reagan and I are going to play a little bit over Skype soon. So, Uh, But I think you'll really like it. If you've got a dungeon master who's all about storytelling, the fifth edition is going to be the way to go. And for the show, we've been sort of playing with the idea of doing a the short game plays some Dungeons and Dragons kind of event, and we're trying to put together a team and a plan there. Um, what we're trying to figure out is if there's a good way to play Dungeons and Dragons in a uh, in a format where the play sessions will be incredibly short. We're talking about thirty minutes or so, um, and to kind of record those as a part of the podcast. So something we're toying with a little bit and fifth edition has made that a lot more possible. Shane and I rolled up a character for me the other day and I had a lot of fun and um, we're, yeah, I'm very excited about it. So um, although this is not really primarily a uh, pen and paper role-playing game show, I hope there's enough crossover for people who are interested and um, we'll be talking about that a little more as we go. Um, How are you doing, Laura? What's up? Uh, Pretty good. I just ripped out a few major um, I guess after school projects, although I'm not in school anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result, I've been playing a lot more games that are longer. Uh, revisiting Fez. I played Fez when I had an older computer. The computer cried. I mm-hmm. wanted to play Fez on the Xbox, but um, you know that is in demand in my household. So <laughs> now uh, that I have a nice new computer, I put Fez on it, played, and um, if someone were to you know, if I were to die tomorrow and someone were going to investigate my death, they would think I was a horrible conspiracy theorist because I have papers that say things like the points tessellate written all over <laughs> the house because I've reached the language decoding session of Fez. Man, I need to go back and give Fez another go. I started it and I just started it at the wrong time. It's not a short game. It's a game that will take you. I don't know what we would estimate, but for me, it was taking many hours to complete, and I think I put in probably about 10 before I got distracted by something and, and never came back to it. It's such a pretty game, though. I really need to, to make the time for it. It's very peaceful, and it, again, that was a game I saved for when I had longer time. I knew that this was probably going to be about a maybe 30-hour game, knowing that I'm going to be decoding and trying to solve some of the higher-level puzzles. But uh, other than that, I bought um, a few two-player, four-player games, uh, Love Letter, Coup, and Hanabi. So I've been playing a lot of those. I'm not uh, familiar with those. Oh. Um, Love Letter is two to four players, and it's um, very simple. Everyone basically has, the the entire deck is 16 cards. And you're trying to get your love letter into the hands of the princess. Very short games, um, six-minute rounds. You play about four, the game's done. Uh, Coup is... Um, also known as, you know, it's from The Resistance. It's the short version of The Resistance, which is a larger game. Um, and it's much more about backstabbing. Um, people who like citadels will definitely gravitate towards Ku. Um, and Hanabi is an interesting little co-op game where um, you're building fireworks and you're holding the deck facing outward so you don't see your cards, but everyone else does. Huh. Um, people can give you hints, but they can only say... Things like, 
this, this, and this are twos, these cards are red. You can only give either color or um, number. And then you have to, you're basically playing collaborative rummy, trying to lay down suits in order. Hmm. Um, I need to play more card games. They're really good for bars. I bought them because I was going on a trip and I wanted to be able to play them on the airplane. Oh, that's a really good idea. Huh. Yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to play very many uh, tabletop games lately. Um, the ones that I have been able to play have mostly been actually digital conversions of tabletop games. Um, like Jamie and I have been playing a lot of uh, the really excellent iPad version of Small World, which we talked about on the show a while back. I also throw one towards the Lord of Waterdeep port is wonderful um, on for iOS. It's uh, another beautiful board game. Uh, the tutorial will take about 20 minutes to get through though hmm. i think i've heard about that game but i haven't actually played it tabletop i'll have to look that up um personally my gaming time has been split between things that i've been playing for the show like uh, uh crypt of the necro dancer that we've going to be talking about today and i freaking loved you know spoiler and uh, also i've been playing my way through uh, sonic 3 and knuckles you listen to our episode about freedom planet you'll hear me totally nerd out about the uh, 90s style character platformer type games like that and rocket knight adventures and some others and uh, because of that i went on ebay and spent far too much money collecting a bunch of random genesis stuff that i either had or wanted when i was a kid and uh, so now on my little tv stand there i've got a nice genesis 2 and i've got the little tower of games with the Sonic and Knuckles and uh, Sonic 3 plugged in and that game is so much better than I remember like when I think back on it I, I remember how frustrated I was with it as a kid and I remember liking the game but I never really felt like I was making progress um, I would play the same level a hundred thousand times I would have to start over a zillion times I'm much better at it today than I ever was. I think just because I've had a lot of practice and I'm an adult with adult-sized thumbs now. Um, <laughs> I don't know what else has changed, but I'm finding it a lot easier than I found it as a kid, and I'm finding it actually a lot more fun than I found it as a kid. I'm you know, making my way through levels. Most of the bosses are only taking me two or three tries to beat, and it's just such a great game. I'm, I've already gotten through all of the Sonic 3 levels, and I'm now about three quarters of the way through the Sonic and Knuckles levels. I'm getting pretty close to the end. Um, and I can actually say that it's kind of a game that you could consider a short game. I did all of that in about two days. If you uh, if you have a Genesis lying around, or the nice thing about those games is that since uh, Sega no longer has consoles of their own to hawk, you can buy them for practically any system. Uh, you can get the PS3 Genesis Classics disc, or you can buy them on Steam now. Gosh, Sonic 3 and Knuckles, as put together, um, is an absolutely great platformer game. It's so fun. I'm just having so much fun with it. Well, guys, I uh, that brings me up uh, to something that I've been... I literally just dug out of a closet. I'm showing you now. For the listeners who can't see, he's got a bin full of Genesis games. I have a literally a bin almost completely full of Genesis games and my much-beloved Sega Nomad, which is the portable version of the Sega Genesis... Uh, I've had these in my closet for a while, and I haven't gotten around to replaying any of them. And so I'm trying to decide now which game to play. I've got 
a huge, huge stack of them. I can kind of rattle them off if you like, and maybe you can recommend one to me, Reagan. Okay. This is all the games that Reagan and I bought as children. Pretty much every one of them were ones that we picked up at Blockbuster when uh, they would This is back when I their, wasn't yeah. allowed to play video games. Oh, you missed out. Uh. We were barely allowed. This was something where I think we actually talked more about this on our, our Freedom Planet episode because we did a lot of nerding out about our Sega game history. But um, so I'm going to go through these as quick as I can. And sure. I'm going to skip some that I know I definitely hated. Uh, <laughs> but there's uh, Bob, Powermonger, Miss Pac-Man, Toe Jam and Earl, Starflight, Mortal Kombat 3 and 2, Sonic Spinball, King of the Monsters 2, Batman Forever, Toxic Crusaders, Streets of Rage 2, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and 3, and Sonic and Knuckles, Ranger X, Lost Vikings, Adventures of Batman and Robin, Fantasy Star 3, Jurassic Park Rampage Edition, Earthworm Jim, X-Men, Arrow the Acrobat, Comic Zone, Lion King, I think I can stop you because there's a lot of good games in there, but... If you're going to just pick one, I would do either one of the Sonic games, Sonic 2 or 3. Oh, shit. I'm dropping all of them. <laughs> or maybe um, uh, Streets of Rage 2. Streets of Rage 2 is a phenomenal game mm-hmm. as well. Should I play it with or without my uh, Game Genie? Oh, I don't know. Um, use the Game Genie. <laughs> See what it does. <laughs> sure, why not? I don't even think I knew how to use that thing when I was a kid. Quick anecdote about um, Sonic. So when um, I was, there's a book called Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell, which is one of my favorite uh, books about uh, the topic. And he says that um, essentially Sonic was invented because when they developed the console, it was really good at rendering screens very quickly from one side to the other. Mm -hmm. And um, they were like, we have to invent a character that can take advantage of this. So they invented Sonic to move very fast through quickly rendered screens because that was the one technological advantage of um, the Sega platform. Makes sense that's, to me. That's so. wonderful, and that it's uh, it was not only it's a great way way to turn a tech advantage into a gameplay advantage because that was the one thing that like defined the Sega Genesis. It's fabulous, even though. Technically speaking, it's not a faster system. You know, it's lower megahertz. It was just the graphics rendering was faster. It, it has a mm-hmm. lower color palette and uh, it can't do things like sprite rotation as well as the Nintendo, but it could render a level moving left to right <laughs> really quickly. Very, very quickly. And uh, it works. It's so much fun to play even till, even still today. Um, you get a really great story behind all of that with uh, with the book Console Wars by uh, Blake Harris. I cannot recommend it enough. I picked that up in the um, one of the bundles, Humble Muddle. I think, oh, yeah, today. yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally read that book. It's phenomenal. Um, I didn't know Humble Bundle was selling books now. Yeah, it's a thing. They also sell comic books, and um, sometimes they have some pretty good selection on there. Speaking of which, today, and this will be out of date when our listeners hear it, so I'm sorry that you missed at least some of it, but today, Humble Bundle, the Humble Store started their late summer sale, and there's a bunch of really good short games on there, um, including uh, Little Inferno, which uh, Laura told us about a little while ago, and um, so I've picked that up. Actually, I already owned it, but I'm encouraging my co-host to pick it up, and we're talking about maybe doing an episode on that in the future. Uh, if that's the case, I hope maybe you'll be able to come back and join us again for it, Laura. I'm almost at 100% achievements on that, which... Wow. Which when you play the game, you'll realize that's kind of sad. (laughs) (laughs) I never get any achievements. I pretty much blow past everything. 
So shall we dive into talking about Crypt of the Necro Dancer? I am so excited about talking about this game. This game I just is loved so it addictive. So much. That's so wonderful. It really uh, is. Okay, uh, so you, let's mm. set up the game for people who may not have heard about it, because this is a game that was flying pretty well under my radar. So we've talked about only one roguelike, and that was FTL. FTL, yeah. And FTL is not your traditional roguelike. This is a much more traditional roguelike, I would say, in all but one way, which is that this roguelike forces you to act on the beat because it merges the roguelike genre with the rhythm game genre in a absolute it's one of those things where you know you got peanut butter in my chocolate you got chocolate in my peanut butter two great tastes taste great together if, if you describe you know peanut butter and chocolate you can hear that and think those might be good together i would never have thought that these two genres could be combined successfully as they have been here. Um, this is more like saying, you know, you got anchovy paste in my fine wine. You put fine wine in my anchovy paste. You know, I, I would never have considered combining these two genres in a million years. I mean, I've played a uh poker RPGs and match three beat em up. So it's at this point, why not do a rhythm game that is also roguelike? And sometimes and for that matter, I hate rhythm games. Oh, you do? I hate them. <laughs> I don't know. That's one of the things that really, yeah, this stood out to me as one of the more fun games I've had in the rhythm game genre. Um, so yeah, that's something that maybe we, before we dive into it, let's talk about a little bit of our uh, our history with these two genres that we're about to combine. Um, it, have it, were any of you any good at DDR or? I was, I mean, I'm decently good. I do as a musician, so I'm good. At, I'm very good at rhythm games. I played a ton of Tap Tap Revolution because I was designing some rhythm games for Disney at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was ripping off all the rhythm game mechanics. So I became pretty good at that. I'm not as familiar with roguelikes, um, mostly because I was playing the ones that had, you know, they were... You could never quite level up the hearts as you oh, can in this game. Yeah. So, you know, you'd get to a certain point, die, and there would be no incentive to start over. Yeah, and that's where I think this game really stands out. I I've always been garbage at rhythm games, particularly dancing games, the kinds of, you know, DDR type things. I was, I had a lot of fun with um, Elite Beat Agents on the Nintendo DS. Uh, that is a phenomenal rhythm game for those of you who kind of maybe are interested in rhythm games but don't want to have to actually move anything other than your finger um but generally speaking i never really enjoyed them and actually like i tried playing um oh geez what's it called the playstation one parappa the rappa i tried playing that recently and i could literally not get past the first level like i'm that bad um so I've never been good at rhythm games, and for the most part, I haven't thought that they were a particularly great genre, but I know that there's something that a lot of people love. I definitely enjoyed Guitar Hero. Oh yeah, that's and true. I think Guitar Hero is is maybe the most popular of the of the rhythm game genres, or, or, or it's been one of the most long-lived. I enjoyed uh, Smogo's Beat Sneak Bandit as well. Oh, I haven't played that yet. It I, that looks really fun, actually, now that you mention it. And in a sense, I think that combines rhythm with stealth 
in a similar way that this combines rhythm with the roguelike genre. So that's interesting. Yeah, the rhythm plus is a much more fun genre than just tapping out because um, if you're just tapping a rhythm in a game, usually it's completely dependent on how much you like the music. That's true. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really was interesting about this game is that reading a little bit about what the developer, Ryan Clark, who is also known, uh, it's really essentially just him plus some collaborators, but um, uh, Ryan Clark, also known as yourself games um, who is developing this game and I say developing because it's still in development as an early access game we'll talk about that later um, but when he talks about what his goals were for the game uh, he says that basically he didn't set out to make a rhythm game he didn't set out to make a game in the rhythm genre he wanted to make a roguelike because he loves roguelikes but he wanted to make a roguelike that was fair and that's something that I think sometimes you really feel like roguelikes aren't fair. I've played, uh, not Rogue itself, but NetHack and some of the other old school uh, roguelike games. And those games rely really heavily on you um, planning out your moves very slowly and carefully, um, knowing in advance what certain things are going to do. So you kind of have to memorize things like, well, uh, these types of bad guys are you know, really powerful or these types of bad guys are easy to kill with arrows or these types of bad guys are vulnerable to light or something. You, know, you have to learn this kind of lore to the game in order to have success with it. And these days, that kind of game is almost short-circuited by the fact that if I have a game that's a roguelike type game and I... You know, if I were playing Rogue today, like traditional Rogue, mm -hmm. and I walked into a room and there was a new letter on the screen, you know, mm -hmm. a capital letter Q or something, I, I would, my first instinct would be, you know, I really don't want to die in one second. So I'm going to flip over to the old Wikipedia <laughs> and I'm going to look up what the capital capital letter Q means mm -hmm. in Rogue. Or what does the blue potion do? Or, you know, and I... I don't really love that because it's a very slow pace and also it can feel really unfair. You know, you'll spawn into a level and then you'll starve to death because there wasn't enough food on this level. And it's like, that doesn't feel yeah. fair. The game just didn't give me enough food and I starved to death. That's not fun. <laughs> and then you have to go all the way back to the beginning and try to remember that next time when you get to level 47, there will not be enough food in that room. Right. Hope or it won't steps. be level 47 because it's random. It's so randomized. it'll be level 63 <laughs> or level 5. Ugh. So that that's always been my challenge with roguelikes. Sometimes I have a, a lot of fun with them, but they can be really unfair and they can feel really cruel to you. And some people love that. Did this game feel fair to you? It did. And that's because so much of the game relies on skill rather than memorization. You can look at this as, as a kind of growing out of games like um, Rogue Legacy or um, Spelunky that kind of build on the roguelike genre. Like they have the things that people point to as big roguelike elements, things like permadeath and, you know, the procedurally generated sort of randomized levels and that kind of thing. But have we talked about Rogue Legacy on this podcast? Not in any great depth. Um, I absolutely loved that game. And so don't get me started if you have a big thing you want to talk about. But I just absolutely love Rogue Legacy. Have either of you played it? Yes, and I'm terrible at it. I have not. I've, I know I should. 
Shane, we will talk it's about Rogue list. Legacy someday right. when I get off my butt and put a pin it. in the map. Okay, yeah. so we'll, it's we'll not stick a, a pin in in, uh, in Rogue Legacy. I don't know. I don't know if this is a short game either. Have either of you got? How far have you gotten through this game? I have gotten into and nearly to the end of Zone Two of Four. I have as well. I've gotten to the boss at the end of zone two, both in single and local co-op. Hmm. I've made it into zone three, which is fiendishly hard. And I haven't gotten, I have, I haven't made it through even half of the levels of zone three. So we'll talk about the structure of the game soon. As far as a short game, um, I think that we can kind of bend on this one. We've talked about roguelikes before, and roguelikes are defined by this very short play session. So it's open-ended in the amount of time that you want to pour into the game. You know, maybe more so than uh, than FTL, this game has a very visible end point. You can get to the Necrodancer and kill him. Um, but the uh, I have not reached that point yet. And um, but even then, I, I feel like I've gotten a really complete experience out of the game. And I think this is the kind of game that you can pick up and play and get a lot out of in an evening, a weekend, you know, like the crap that we say at the beginning of the show, um, without necessarily having to feel like you have to devote your life to it. You mean the crap you missed in the intro to this this episode? <laughs> My intros are legendary. Legendarily awful. But uh, this game, yeah, I think it kind of qualifies, you know, because most sessions of this game are going to be no more than 15 minutes. Like, I don't think I've played from beginning to end and had it take more than 15 minutes before I was dead. But I always felt like I was making progress. Yes, when you start, your your playthroughs will probably be in the uh, tens of seconds. <laughs> seconds to minutes range for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So... We've uh, we've talked a little bit about the game in a sort of a vague sense um, and how the developer wanted to make this fair game where every time that you die and you will die many times in, in any roguelike, that's sort of the nature of the genre. Um, but you, he wanted you to know why you died and feel like you died for a fair reason. And I really think he's accomplished that here. Um, but let's finish setting up the game in terms of what it actually looks like, sounds like, and plays like. So um, in the game, uh, which you'll begin with a cutscene in which Cadence, the main player, uh, the main character, uh, she is searching for her missing or possibly dead father. They told me I was too young. They told me I needed more training. I told them to drop dead. How ironic. I don't know how I survived that fall. Something strange must have happened. In the first moment, in the first cutscene, she falls through the floor and hits her head on a rock and is apparently mortally wounded. My pulse is beating like a drum, but my blood is running cold. I'm not sure what's going on, but I came here with a question. And I'm going to find the answer if it kills me. And the Necro Dancer comes along and rips from her body her still, her, her dead heart and reanimates it to the beat of his necrotic music. So uh, we'll be playing a lot of that. As you listen, you'll probably be hearing the really sweet soundtrack of Crypt of the Necro Dancer in the background right now as we talk. Um, totally sick beats. It was sick. So, oh, and speaking of which, it's made by uh, Danny... Baranowski. Uh, Danny Baranowski is a uh, music 
a game music guy who's more famous for his work on Super, Super Meat Boy, Binding of Isaac, and Cannibalt. And um, all of those have amazing soundtracks. In particular, Cannibalt, which essentially just has one big long track, but it's great. I love the music in that game. And he's done a great job of creating a really varied and interesting soundtrack for this game that's really central to how the game plays. So uh, two big thumbs up to Danny Baranowski. So you're regenerated as a as a walking corpse, I guess. Is it? I don't know. Whatever. The Necro Dancer has bound your heartbeat to the beat of his evil music, um, but also uh, all of the villains or monsters in the dungeon are also bound to the same beat. So you must move on the beat. You can only attack on the beat, but all of your opponents also only move and attack on the beat. And uh, so it essentially takes the turn that you would take in every roguelike and turns those into something that you have to enact every moment, every time the beat hits on a song. And not to mention, uh, when you reach the end of the song, you absolutely have to go to the next level. It drops you through the floor. So that's something very different from any other roguelike I've played. Because in every other roguelike I've played, I will, in those early levels, grind the heck out of the early levels and try and collect every single scrap of experience and weapons and items that I can from those early levels because you know by the time you have you you know go down the stairs to the next level you will be fighting much stronger enemies that's true here as well but if you just wander around aimlessly by the time the song ends you'll be dropped through the floor and you'll be completely screwed because you have <laughs> nothing yeah and you have to uh, you uh, typically, when you're playing through each uh, floor of the dungeon, uh, there is a mini-boss on each floor that you have to kill. If you don't kill that mini-boss before the song that you're playing through ends, then you're dropped into a much worse situation than you would be if you just took the stairs. So um, it's in your interest to uh, to hurry up and play through the game, and it really keeps the pace uh, interesting. It's not chess, it's, a, it's an action game. It really changed the play sessions, too, because... Um... I was playing a lot of local co-op, and when we were talking about, we're like, this is a diamond run. We're going to, we'll talk about diamonds in a minute, I'm sure, mm -hmm. but we, we did different runs for different techniques. You know, this time we're actually going to try to go as far as possible. This time we're mining. Um, I think in most, um, I haven't played as many rogues as you guys have, but when I have, um, you didn't have to decide which elements you were grinding for. You just stocked up on all supplies before you headed for browner pastures. <laughs> but uh, in this game, you really need to prioritize because no matter what, the song's going to end, um, you're going to be in a terrible situation. And if you didn't get enough money or diamonds or loot before... Or a cool pair of boots or a sweet weapon. Or a whip. Or you didn't get your butt back to the store. Um, there's the maps of this... Um, you know, often you'll be stuck in a corner and you're, you have to weigh if it's worth going to the exit stairs or trying to make it all the way across the map to try to get to where you know you can spend the money. A lot of decision making that you don't normally get in dungeon crawlers. About those diamonds, that's one of the things that really, I think, 
is an evolutionary change in roguelikes that we've seen a lot. And I know that Shane, you're a big fan of uh, Rogue Legacy. I think this is a, a something that this game is learned from Rogue Legacy, which is that roguelikes can be more fun if there is some level of progression even though you're dying again and again and starting over again and again. Definitely. Yeah. In Rogue Legacy, you are leveling up your mansion and your bloodline, not necessarily your character. Your character dies every time. Uh, but as you go, your family legacy grows and grows and grows. And in this game, you collect diamonds that allow you to level up not necessarily your character. Yeah, there's a few but... things that you can do, like unlocking additional heart containers so that you can mm-hmm. have a, like a larger amount of life when you go into the dungeon. But apart from that, almost everything that you unlock is actually just almost leveling up the dungeon itself. Yeah, you're leveling up the uh, the items that you'll find. And unlocking new items means that when you do find that shop or when you do find that great uh, treasure chest, you're likely to find something more useful to you in it, um, which is a huge help. Some of the items in this are really cool. Well, in addition to the store permanent upgrades, um, one of the um, aspects of it is you can unlock cages where characters, when you release a character, then you unlock a new area of the lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can go train against mini bosses. You can go train against the creatures you will find in the dungeon. Um, you can now have spells. You can now have gun holsters. And I don't is he a, you know, some kind of equipment maker? Yeah. Um, but you, you can unlock your friends, essentially. Um, and then as you continue to collect diamonds, you can then buy for more stores. Mm-hmm. So there's permanent upgrades of your character, but you're also leveling up your... The ability to unlock those things like the ability to practice against the bad guys or practice against the bosses is actually really vital because when you've played all the way through those four levels of the dungeon and you reach that boss, it's really nice to have played a couple of times against that boss already and have practiced a little bit to know what the beat of the music is going to be like, to know what the dance moves he's going to pull off are. All of the enemies that you face in the dungeon, all of the monsters, have a particular way of moving on the beat. They either either move every other beat, or they tend to move towards you, but only on the third beat, or something like that. It's it, all of them have their own little dance that they. Speaking execute. of the enemies, did you guys have any particular enemies that you found incredibly troubling? Well, a lot of them were pretty tricky. Um, some of the more leveled up skeletons are pretty hard. I was absolutely ruined by skeletons. Really. Hated the skeletons so badly. Well, the skeletons, once you get the hang of them, they're not so bad. You, you attack her on the side, and then everything's great. Um, for me, when I saw the nightmare beast coming, I just was like, oh god. That was one of my worst, my most hated mini bosses. I got down the banshee, I figured out the dragon. Um, but when that the nightmare dog and his black pit of despair descended, I was never able to quite figure out his attack until I unlocked it. Yeah, I don't know what they're called, but there's these pink floating ghost people that come out of the walls, and um, they have this thing where they come up behind you very quickly, and then when you turn to hit them, they warp to your rear, 
and attack you from there. And um, I, I don't remember if those are in zone two or zone three, but they wreck me every time. If I see them, I, ugh, it's bad. It's very bad. So yeah, zone three is still truly kicking my butt. And um, I don't know if I'll ever make it past zone three, but I'm gonna keep at it. One of my favorite design details is the disco floor. Yes. I found that you could turn off in the settings. Why would you ever turn off a disco floor? That's so wonderful. <laughs> um, which is if you are actually, it reminds me actually a lot of DDR, where if you're in, or Guitar Hero, where if you're in the groove, the entire screen changes to reflect the fact that you're actually doing awesomely for this one split second before you lose all your life. And you get this wonderful disco floor effect. The, the, speaking of which, the groove chain is an incredibly important part of the game. Um, if you're if you're acting on the beat all the time and you don't get hit, then you establish a groove chain. So if I kill an enemy and I'm continuing to stay on the beat, and then I then I've got a groove chain of one. And if I kill a second enemy, I've got a groove chain of three and I uh, two, and I think there's a maximum of three. And um, it affects the multiplier that affects how it gives a multiplier to how much loot you get from the enemies that you kill and it's vital to get a good groove chain and to maintain it to stay on the beat and to not lose the beat of the song and to not get hit and if you really observe how the enemies move it's actually totally possible to kill most enemies without ever getting hit without ever taking damage um and to keep your groove chain through you know multiple levels um so by doing that, you get a lot more coins and you can spend them on upgrades. And that's really the key to making it through to the boss of each level. That's one of the really hard things about local multiplayer is that if one of you messes up, you lose the groove chain. Oh, yes. Um, it's, you know, it's the, all, the other issue is that um, you're splitting all the loot. So if oh. someone runs over and eats all the um, apples and turkey legs then you're, and you have one life left, you just end up calling him... <laughs> terrible names <laughs> and uh, yes i've been playing with julia my wife and she uh i i love her to death but she ruins my groove chain <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i'm justin is quite talented uh my boyfriend at this game um it's not so much the groove chain as when one person dies and the other person manages to just stay for a long long time winning the level the other person sits there and sees hmm yeah, that's well, rough. But actually, well, what is nice about the stairs, it? Once you get stairs, they do resurrect your um, your partner. Exactly, so. and the co-op mode is actually a lot of fun. I've only gotten a chance to play it very briefly with somebody at a games meetup, but um, I really enjoyed that aspect of the game. And I've never seen a roguelike that had a co-op mode like this. I think more games need exactly what this game has, which is local, same screen co-op. Mm -hmm. I will play any game that has that because that is absolutely what Julia loves. And I like to get Julia to play games. So she's not crazy about video games in general, but if it has co-op and it's not a split screen co-op, she will get into it. Towerfall is still her game. Explosion Man. Oh, I, I have never played that. Play Explosion Man. Oh, okay. Explosion Man. I'll okay. put that on my yeah, list. Good incredible awesome yeah so this game's art style we haven't talked so much about anything about it visually or uh much too much about the art of the game um 
I would describe it as very SNES influenced. It's got this pixel art style that, uh, and, and a sort of a top-down perspective that you would be used to from most roguelikes. Um, did you guys find it effective or what did you think about the art? I thought the art was great. Uh, it was simple, it was to the point. Um, I didn't think there was anything that really stood out as gorgeous or awful. It occasionally became a small problem in differentiating loot because I feel that you know some of the loot, especially when you get into you know titanium versus you know the, the different types of metals for daggers, it becomes somewhat difficult to figure out which one was which, mm. especially in local co-op when your your partner was picking up weapons and dropping them. Um, but they did actually have the label pop up when you picked it up, so you always knew if you were getting the titanium broadsword or the plain old metal one. So that was the only time when it became a problem. Um, I enjoy the art for the most part, but I didn't find it, you know, it doesn't have the soothing pixel art of Fez, which I've been staring at, or, you know, even a Super Meat Boy. I'd say it it meets the mark. It's, it's pretty enough. And um, I'd say that a lot of... The one thing about the art that I think stands out as absolutely great is some of the animations. Um, the main one that I'm thinking of right now is the the weird little wiggly dance that the skeletons do, which I still laugh at sometimes when I see it. And every one of the zillions of enemies that are going to be coming at you are doing a little dance of some kind. And uh, some of them are absolutely great. So uh, I'd say animations-wise, the pixel art here is phenomenal. It's really great. But it's, uh, it's a typical pixel art game, and uh, it's not going to win any, like... Uh, huge accolades for originality in art, but it looks pretty darn good. And the little stone golem dancing from side to side is absolutely marvelous. Oh, I almost feel too. bad killing them because I want to see them dance for a while. <laughs> and I murder them. That's what I love about this game is it's like you're in this dungeon fighting for your life, but it still feels like you're partying in a disco with like weird skeleton monsters. Yeah, when you're doing well at this game, you really feel like you're rocking out a little bit. You're, you know, and something we didn't talk too much about is how simple the controls are. Um, this game uses only four buttons, up, down, left, and right on your keyboard. Um, and because of that, you can also play with a gamepad, like a dance pad. So if you have a... Um, if you have a DDR pad sitting in your closet collecting dust, you can whip that out and play this game. It plays so simply and so fun that in a, in a way, it really does feel like a dance game. Even if you're just dancing on your keyboard with your fingers, you feel like you're kind of really grooving. And the music is fun. And sometimes when you get that groove chain up to three and you really feel like you're on a roll, this game feels like a fun dance party in which you kill things. It's it's. It's so much fun in that way. Did any of you guys get a chance to play this with a game with a dance pad? I know I have not yet. Sadly, no. I did not. There was a tale of one in the closet somewhere, but it ended up being a mirage. Oh, bummer. See, I've been asking around. Unfortunately, I'm just not in the type of crowd where people have uh, DDR pads collecting dust in their closets. And do you wish you were in that crowd? It. it Yes Co-workers. And, yes. <laughs> Co-workers with children is how I almost got hands on a dance pad. Yes and no. Yeah, I um I tried to uh, tried to procure one in order to try this game out for it. But this game has a special dance pad mode. Um, it, 
because the controls are so simple, you know, you're literally only pressing up, down, left, or right to move. If you press up, down, left, or right to move into an enemy, you attack that enemy. And um, there are spells and items that you can activate using two button combos, never more than two. So left and right at the same time will activate certain spells. Up left or up right or down left or down right will activate item slots or spell slots for you. So um, it's very easy. And actually, I thought that was a huge strength of the game. It's incredibly easy to pick up. And um, in addition to how simple it is to move around and attack, it's still pretty darn simple to activate your weapons without having to think about it. Um, but because of that, a dance pad, I think, would really work. And they have a special dance pad mode where they lower the difficulty a little bit because obviously if you you're going to have more difficulty moving your legs on a dance pad than your fingers on a keyboard. I'm much more coordinated with my fingers than my legs, yes. As are we all. This game is exhausting enough, just the stress of getting through multiple dungeons and staying on beat, that the idea of trying to do that and dancing at the same time is appalling. <laughs> no, I think it would actually be a blast, yeah, but I would want to do it with someone else. I think it would, and it would really get the cardio going. Mm-hmm. I'd love to whip this out with two game pads at a party and uh, do the co-op mode and see who survives. So this is a early access game on Steam and uh, playing it was almost a departure for me because I tend to avoid early access games. I usually don't like buying games before they're quote unquote done. Um, I mean, this even applied for me to games like Minecraft, which I played early on and didn't really get, didn't really enjoy a lot, and then played again much later. Obviously, that game was in quote-unquote early access, you know, beta, whatever they wanted to call it for how long now? A decade? Like, geez. But, um, you know, it got significantly better as it went along, um, and every experience I've ever had with games like that, I always felt like it was better to jump in later rather than sooner, because I'm not going to go back and play the game again and again and again in order to check out the, you know, 10% improvement that the developer has made in playability and graphics or whatever they've added, I want to play a game once and play it right. Um, this game I made an exception for, and I'm super glad that I did because I think actually they're doing a great job with this. It feels complete. Um, do you guys play early access games? I try not to too much, but some I, I really get tempted by. Um, you're right that I, I think it's it's a risk, and I feel like almost like with a Kickstarter, it's hard to say like, am I putting my money towards something that's going to pay off or be worthwhile? So much harder to do. I, in a lot of cases, this game stretches a little bit on what I like to do with an early early access game. I don't like to spend that much more than 10 bucks on an early access game. This game, as it stands, is about 15 bucks. 14.99. And that's a little more than I like to spend on an early access game. So, knowing that, you know, this is a game that I've seen videos of, I know I love the genre of roguelike, I, I felt a little bit more, comp uh, more confident. Uh, but, I don't know, it, it's one of those things where 
I feel like when I'm playing a game early access and I'm helping to beta test something, I shouldn't be spending a lot of money on it. Hmm. But I got you. And that's just me. Yeah, you're paying a little bit for exclusivity, but you're also a guinea pig. Um, mm-hmm. The only game I've played early access, I wouldn't even say I played it. Um, I uh, Sunless Sea by um, Fall in London, Echo Bazaar, uh, that browser-based game. Mm-hmm. They put out their first um, major uh, desktop game uh, called The Sunless Sea, and it was an, a spinoff of the story. And I was a huge fan of Fall in London, so I started the game and then almost immediately after about an hour abandoned it because I wanted to make sure that when I put the 40 hours in to have the full game, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't play the first 12 in the early access and then replay it. Mm-hmm. So once I realized that I was hooked, I moved on. That's a little bit of an anomaly though. I was Kickstarter backer. So I got early access as part of the package and I know I'm getting the final game for free. Well, I paid. I prepaid for the final game. So early access was just part of the the package. Yeah, and I've done the same. When I backed games on Kickstarter, I tend to kind of hold back on playing them, even if they offer you early access play or a beta or something like that. I tend to hold off on playing them until whatever their quote-unquote official final release is. This game, I felt okay jumping into it when we did, um, mainly because with roguelikes, you... So if I, let's say I'm buying an early access RPG, there is zero chance that I'm going to go back and start that game over in order to experience the cool new stuff that was added to the first act of the game. It's not going to happen. Uh, even if it's a short RPG, you know, I want to play through a story. But a roguelike, you're going to be playing through it again and again from the beginning every time, essentially. Uh, And with this game, at least you'll be playing through the beginning of each of the four acts, you know, from the beginning every time. Um, I think that this game, you know, like most roguelikes, I think it works for early access because once you've got the core of the gameplay down and they have the core of this gameplay well in hand, it's, it's working. It's definitely working. The polish is in terms of adding new items which is cool to see a new item appear. That's great. And that can happen at any time. And it feels like an organic part of your play. Um, just to polish the balance. It's great to see that that polish increase and to, to feel like I've already had a couple of updates to the game. And all of them have been little things that didn't overhaul my gameplay experience, but improved it in a small way. Um, so I think that absolutely this game could be called done today. Uh, with just a couple of exceptions. I mean, they need to clean up a little bit of some of the artwork on the initial startup screen. They need to fix some of the uh, the voiceover for some of the... There's a couple of little voice effects that sound really weird. I don't know. But um, the art seems ready to go. The, uh, the balance of the game and the fun of the game seems ready to go. The music seems totally ready to go. Um, so there's essentially just a small amount of polish that's going to be continued to be applied to this game. And I could consider this game done today. This game could be released today. I mean, this is early access in the sense that buying an iOS game the day it's released is early access. You know that any developer on iOS is going to hold a few things back or they'll have additional polish bugs, you know, some bug fixes later down the line. There's going to be updates. Often people, you know, three months later are released new levels, new zones, new pieces. That's what this game feels like. It's complete now, Mm -hmm. but 
they're going to do small updates that will keep me coming back. Absolutely. And if I see an update come down the pike for this game that adds a new boss, adds a new level, I will be all over that trying to play that because every piece of content that I've encountered in this game is fun. So did anybody else try the uh, different characters? Like the bard. I actually haven't tried any of those. You mentioned bards earlier. Since you <laughs> I, yes, I did. I played the bard briefly. Um, I, yeah. I do prefer that, cadence, actually. But mm-hmm. I did I, too, but the bard turned this into a much more traditional roguelike. That's a place where this game is an early access game. It uh, feels like it might be missing a lot of things because there are, there are places in that lobby area for you to access tons of different alternate characters only a few of them are accessible right now one of them being the bard and the differences in the characters is basically how they move it seems like when you move as the bard you're moving not necessarily on the beat but you can move whenever you like and then the bad guys will move immediately after you. It transforms it into a more traditional roguelike where you can it does. plan your moves, mm-hmm. which I don't think sounds like a huge improvement for this game, but if you'd like the novelty of trying that style of play out in this same game, I think that's great that they offer that. I definitely used the bard not necessarily as a way of playing the game, but as a way of training. I, I took the bard into the sort of Beastmaster area. I don't know if you guys unlocked the Beastmaster mm-hmm. and the mini boss training uh, to try out playing against all the different bosses, just as a way to, to kind of test out the different mechanics of the different enemies, see all their different animations. Funny, I did the same thing. I, I took the Bard in for a few people who I, uh, they moved too fast or I hadn't got a, grips on their attack. I knew how to attack them, but didn't understand the you know, how to move away from them. So the bard was just kind of my way of testing my theories. Didn't, I, I didn't enjoy the experience of actually being in the dungeon, though. I think it, it lost what made the game special. Yeah. I hate the skeletons, guys. <laughs> <laughs> as far as other play styles, there's, uh, there's another character called Arya that you can play as, and Arya if she misses a beat, she dies. So it's very hard. Um, I miss beats sometimes just because I'm white and don't have rhythm. And um, so that really increases the difficulty of the game for me because it essentially ensures that I will die in the first level. I played as Arya just a little bit and that's not happening for me. But that's kind of a special, serious, for uber killers of this game if you want that extra difficulty you can flex it with that aria character there's also a a, one of those shrines in the game there's a lot of little shrines peppered throughout the game and every shrine you get uh gives you some big benefit but also gives you varying different drawbacks and there's a shrine of rhythm um, that gives you you know extra items and loot but if you miss a beat after touching that shrine, you will die instantly. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. <laughs> but um, there's other playstyles as well, and I think probably the most important one that they added here, that I think they really drew a lot of inspiration from Spelunky on, is the hardcore mode and the daily challenge. Did either of you guys try the daily challenge mode? Yes. I did play some of the daily challenge. I think this is the smartest 
thing that they added to the game. And I had a ton of fun playing through the daily challenge. So with the daily challenge, it takes away all of the earned upgrades that you've had. And it lets you play through the dungeon from the very first moment all the way as far as you can get. And you're playing exactly the same dungeon as everybody else who plays the daily challenge during that 24 hour period. Um, so you'll start with just two hearts, even if you've upgraded to more hearts later, and you'll start with a pretty bare set of, uh, of, of available upgrades. And uh, you're playing hardcore mode uh, during those daily challenges, which means that you don't get to start at whichever zone you want. You have to start at zone one and make it through as far as you can get. And what's really great about the daily challenge, the thing that I enjoyed most about it, because let's be honest, I'm rubbish at it. I will never make the leaderboard. It's never gonna happen. It's very cool that it exists and that you're able to compare your scores against other people. But what really was exciting for me about the daily challenge is that every single person who completes the daily challenge has the option of recording a replay of their play for that challenge. And you can watch the replay that anybody else has recorded. So if you finish the daily challenge and you have been terrible at it and you want to see what an amazing player plays this game like, you can then jump into and see a daily challenge playthrough by any of the people on the leaderboard. Uh, so you can go right to that top spot on the leaderboard and see somebody absolutely nail the entire game. It's amazing to see. And I just think that's so much fun. I actually lost a couple of hours watching those playthroughs at one point just to get tips on how the game plays and and see a really expert player play it it's awesome it's a really great addition i didn't notice that i'm gonna go back and i'll add that you can play it once right you can only play the daily dungeon the daily challenge one time and then it's closed for the day so it's not as if people are playing this multiple times you were acing it on the first try if you get through the daily dungeon in one go no one sneezed no one else walked in the room and distracted you both of which have happened when I started the Daily Dungeon, and then I was like, oh, I'm dead. I have to wait 24 hours Ugh. to try to redeem myself. But that's such a great addition to the game. I know that's a popular feature of Spelunky, um, and I think that this game drew some inspiration there, and what a great addition to this game. Um, once you've really mastered the game, or even if you haven't mastered the game, it's great to play through those Daily Dungeons, because it's it's usually quick. I die within the first level on those most of the time, because I'm terrible. Um, but you get to see how what amazing players are playing like. It's really cool. And this is a game with great success because it's a fair game. A, a reasonably good player, better than me, has a pretty good chance of beating the game when they start it. Um, so, you know, those people on the leaderboard, most of them got all the way through all four acts plus killed the Necro Dancer, and it's just a race for score. And uh, so, yeah, there's definitely hope. If you want to put the time in, you can you can master this game. Maybe not you specifically. No. <laughs> Maybe not me. But you, listener. We like to play games in, a, in an evening or a long weekend, and you absolutely can't master this game in that amount of time. You could get pretty far, though. Another thing that I think is great about the game is how varied and interesting the bosses are. And... Um, uh, there are just four of them at the moment. This is an area that I think maybe the game can expand on and, and add more um, uh, more variety. But when you get to the end of one of the zones and you've beaten the four levels of the zone, the fifth level is a boss battle. And it'll randomly select a boss for you to play against. So, uh, for example, there is uh, King Konga, an evil uh, dancing gorilla 
and the music in the King Conga level has every eighth beat is a rest. Which is a huge change from the rest of the game. You have to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, stop. And you don't move on that extra beat. Which totally threw me off. I am still... I did not even realize that. I totally got owned by him every single time. Yeah, that's a really hard one. Uh, there's another one called Death Metal. which is a sort of evil death character. And the music on that is extremely fast paced death metal. And so you have to be really moving at your top maximum speed in order to face off with death metal. Uh, what are the other ones I'm trying to recall? There's the chess boss. Oh yeah. bad guys are evil chess pieces and you have to defeat them and they move according to their chess rules really interesting one and there's one other and now i can't remember what it was we'll leave that for the listeners to discover maybe yeah i've, I've only beaten king conga and death metal I, I i did not beat the chess piece or the other one king conga has a conga line that uh is like a line of of zombies and other uh bad guys that sort of protect him and the conga line killed me every time before I could do any real damage to King Conga. But yeah. the chess boss I've only beaten so the chess boss. The chess yeah. boss and also uh, death metal. Not too terribly hard. The other two are pretty hard. Yeah, death metal, if you just get your pace up, you can basically kill him very quickly. And it's almost staggering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you just have to get your druthers together and move forward and not, and not get killed by his minions. So this game was a ton of fun. And uh, I will definitely continue playing it. I'm going to experiment a little bit with the uh, with the custom music uh, because it will actually analyze the beat of your music. Uh, it has some kind of uh, software in there that will listen to your existing MP3s and try to uh, assign a beat to them, and you can play against whatever song you want to throw at it. So there's a lot. Of I still have not tried that, but I'm really looking forward to it. I've been trying to find an appropriate song because they need to be long enough. That's true. That, that, that's been the biggest challenge for me is they, they don't give suggested times. I assume they'll loop, but I've been trying to find a long enough song with a consistent beat because, you know, uh, a lot of pop songs are going to have variable tempos, at least during the bridge. And then um, I don't want to suddenly die halfway through. So just set every single one to Freebird. <laughs> just pull out your EDM collection and it'll be fine. <laughs> But uh, fortunately, the music that comes with the game is phenomenal, and I still haven't gotten tired of it, so I'm still playing through that. Uh, and I think I'll probably be playing this game for a little while longer um, until the next game comes along for the short game, and I am uh, trapped and uh, enraptured by something else. But I think this game was a, a really fun thing to experience. Um, so where, where can people get this game? Steam. That is it right now. It is a Steam early access game. So you can buy this game on Steam for 15 bucks. Fortunately, it is available for both Windows and Mac, and I think also Linux. Is that right? Definitely Windows and Mac. Linux probably. I don't know. We'll see. Someday it's probably going to be on Linux. I don't know if it's out there yet, but uh, um, odds are, sorry, Linux people, you're probably not listening to this show. Who knows? Statistically. But... 
Fortunately, the game plays really well on both platforms. I played through this mostly on Mac, which was nice because I was able to put it on one screen while I quote unquote did work on the other. Went great. And um, so totally recommend this game and you can download it for just 15 bucks on Steam and follow the development, which is happening totally in public, both on the developer's website. They've got a great forum where people are discussing play styles. There's a subreddit for this game that you know the developer specifically links to from his site and you can check out where people post great runs or uh, great tips and talk about the new additions to the game as it updates. Um, and of course, you can follow the developer on Twitter and, and uh, they're doing a pretty good job of, of describing their development process there too. So it's an interesting process and I totally recommend getting in on this game on early access. I don't usually say that. Totally get this game. Amazing. I liked the music. I really did. I did too. You know, it's a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit... Um, it's not the kind of thing that I would put on on its own most of the time, but it so works for this game. It's because it's dancey. I'm so excited that this I get to add a new game to my list of non-gamer friend games. Yeah. That I can recommend this to them, know they're going to enjoy it, um, know that they're going to secretly get into all the collection and loot upgrades. It's kind of stealth getting them into um, other games when I know that, you know, I, I feel like the same people who like Rock Band will like this game. And you cannot say that about 99% of the games I play. And certainly not a roguelike. <laughs> certainly not a roguelike. And this is a great game that you can whip out at a party. You can play this on a TV and people can play it on a on a game pad or dance pads or keyboards or anything. Anything with up, down, left, and right on it. Actually, that is one challenge I ran into with this game is that because the game requires you to be able to hit up and down or left and right, for example, at the same time, um, it's a little difficult to play on some game pads. If you have a game pad that allows you to hit opposing directions at the same time, no problem. But um, my game pad has one of those disc style D-pads that isn't separated. Something like a PS4 controller you could probably use because the D-pad is actually four separate buttons. But um, Or you could reassign the buttons to... Uh reassign the directions to the buttons rather than the d-pad true and you can set alternate buttons so theoretically you could hit like up on the d-pad and like whatever the bottom of the face button is or something like that to activate things like that but that just adds some unnecessary complexity the best way to play this game is with four arrow keys on a keyboard i'm sure at some point someone's going to hack a guitar hero guitar so that they could play this game on there but for now, I'll stick with my arrow keys. Absolutely. Speaking of which, today I saw I saw someone who had beaten Dark Souls with a Guitar Hero guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. Is there a video of this? Because I would really like to see that happen. I'm pretty sure there is. Yes. I just did, felt... That's a game that I bought and then returned because it was too hard. <laughs> So I didn't even really want to watch that. Well, that's fascinating. I'll see if I can put a link to that in the show notes. All right. Well, thanks, Laura, for joining us for this episode. And, and um, we're going to be talking about some, some really exciting games over the next few weeks. So I hope that uh, you guys will come back and, uh, and keep listening. We've got a whole queue of really cool stuff coming up. Um, hopefully, Laura will be able to join us uh, sometime later in this quote unquote season when we'll be talking about... Uh, a little Inferno that I can't wait to play now that it's finally uh, on sale again. And uh, I've been able to convince my co-hosts to pick it up on Steam. And um, welcome to the end of the show. It's the end of the show. 
And uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of The Short Game. We'll hopefully catch you again soon. Hey, guys, get on my Twitter. I got on. I got back on Twitter this week because <laughs> I was like all off of Twitter. I didn't even give a shit about Twitter. I apologize, Twitter. Twitter was so interesting this week. It was so lonely without you. Oh, Shane, we missed you on Twitter. Guys, there was all this whole Gamergate thing that we decided not to talk about because it was so gross. Oh, let's not talk about Gamergate <laughs> no, on the no, show. No, 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 no. Uh, we're not going to talk about it on the show. I felt bad to be a man, but I felt good because I was on Twitter. <laughs> and and you, you probably followed some ladies with some very interesting things I to say did, about it. I did. I even found some new podcasts. Yeah, it's been actually a, it's been a productive if disgusting week um so you can follow our show on twitter where we treat tweet infrequently but about very interesting things at underscore short game and of course you can follow our podcast on the web at www.theshortgame.net where you can read all of the show notes for this episode where we'll be putting links to anything relevant that we think of while we're doing the editing um, you can follow me personally on twitter at reagan k that's r-a-y-g-a-n-k laura where can people keep up with you i'm mostly twitter uh at laura j nash l-a-u-r-a-j-n-a-s-h um, I do tweet about games sometimes, but you're also going to get a lot of user experience information about there. So, Which is always uh, fascinating. You tweet some great links. Good. Thank you. And Shane, you said that you're back on Twitter. Where, what's your handle there? At 8BitShane. It is Number so. Number 8. The letters B-I-T <laughs> and the proper spelling of my name. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this Really, I had a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. This episode of The Short Game, and uh, we will hopefully talk to you again next week on another awesome episode of The Short Game.